You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. If you would please open your Bibles to the book of Psalms and remain standing if you are able for the reading and proclaiming of God's word. Our reading this morning is from Psalm 126. A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we are continuing in our series through the Psalms of Ascent. These are songs that would be sung by God's people as they would journey to Jerusalem for worship. And what they serve as for us today is really a playlist for those who are on the journey of faith, journeying toward God. And what Psalm 126 shows us is that this is a journey marked by both sorrow and joy. A journey of both sorrow and joy. Now, if we're to be honest, these are really odd travel companions. And for many of us, these are hard to reconcile. Uh, an author named Kate Bowler said, I can't reconcile the way that the world is jolted by events that are wonderful and terrible, the gorgeous and the tragic, except that I'm beginning to believe that these opposites do not cancel each other out. I think the same thoughts again and again. Life is so beautiful. Life is so hard. See, making it through a year like 2020 is going to require us to learn how to hold sorrow and joy in tension and really to recognize that they don't cancel each other out, not at least for the Christian. And one of the ways that God grows us in our ability to embrace both is through worship, is through singing. In fact, songs like this psalm are God's way and really God's provision for us in order to help us to, to reconcile things in life that seem irreconcilable. Elsewhere in the Psalms, the psalmist found themselves in a place we find ourselves often. He's confused by life things and his life don't seem to be adding up. And then he expresses these words in Psalm 73. When I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply until... I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood. I tried to understand, and it just made me more confused until I entered the sanctuary of God. Worship is where we begin to really understand and learn to express joy and sorrow simultaneously. See, what Psalm 126 shows us is that 
lament, by the way, this is a psalm of corporate lament, which means, you know, expressing our sorrow honestly before God and and telling God about our pain. But what, what Psalm 126 shows us is that lament is not wallowing in despair. Lament is learning how to attach our sorrow to the hope that is available to us in God. It's learning to sow our our sorrow in the faithful soil of God's character in a way that results in joy, real, lasting joy. Now, I remember years ago, a former member invited someone to gather with us and worship on a Sunday morning, and this person was suffering greatly in their life. Um, They were suffering physically, relationally, emotionally, just you name it. And afterwards, this member told me that their friend, this guest, was greatly offended by how insensitive our service was, our gathering was, and particularly the way that we are singing glad songs. And so I was a little bit disturbed by this and began to kind of press. You know, I wanted to know why. And after we discussed this, it became pretty obvious to me that the expectation of both the guest and, turns out, the member was that the entire mood of the worship service should be brought down to a somber tone and that this was the right way to create space that would be welcoming to those who are suffering. Now, while I acknowledged the heart behind this, it seemed like it was coming from a genuine place of compassion And I acknowledge that the Bible does tell us that we are supposed to weep with those who weep and that we should and and we do create spaces of silence for reflection and grieving and confession and lamenting. We, We do that in our services and we also do that in our calendar year. But I think what it came down to really was a misunderstanding of what songs of joy actually are. See, when we sing songs of joy, it's not that we are being oblivious to the pain and suffering that we and others are experiencing, and and it's not turning a blind eye to sorrow. Songs of joy are an act of resistance against the forces of despair. Songs of joy are an invitation out of despair and into hope. And that's what I pray. That's what we pray reality becomes to a hurting city filled with hurting people, a place where we can be brought out of despair and into God's hope, into lasting joy. This is what Horatio Spadford discovered. Horatio Spadford was a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago in the 1800s. He and his wife were wealthy. They had uh, five children, four girls, and one boy. And by most appearances, these were successful, quote-unquote, blessed people. But in 1870, things began to fall apart. They lost their only son to scarlet fever A year later, almost all of their belongings were devastated in the great uh, Chicago fire. And so looking for sort of a fresh start, he and his family planned to to spend some time in the the UK. But because of a last minute uh, work emergency, he had to stay back and he sent his family, his wife and daughters, uh, to move on and go to UK and wait for him there. And while they were traveling by ship, their ship was struck by another boat and Within minutes, their ship sank, claiming the lives of almost everyone on board, including 
every one of his daughters. Spafford got a telegram from his trembling wife soon after saying these words, survived alone, what should I do? And so boarding the next ship, leaving the States to the UK to meet his wife, he's on his way and the ship captain calls him to the bridge and he says, by my best estimate, this is the very location where that ship sank, where your daughters went down with it. And there in that place of deep sorrow, deep sorrow that I can't even begin to imagine, he penned these famous, faithful verses. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roar, roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet and Trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And Lord, haste the day when faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll and the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. What are we witnessing? We are witnessing someone that is being brought out of despair and into the hope that is ours in God through worship and praise, through songs of joy. And this psalm shows us that we can experience this too as people, individuals, and as a community. And really what the psalm shows us is what that journey out of despair and into hope is going to require for us. It's not going to come easy. It's not just going to appear for us. That that journey out of despair and into hope is going to require three things of us. It's going to require considering the past. It's going to require cultivating in the present. And finally, it's going to require contemplating the future. Let's look first at considering the past. Now, Michelle and I had the opportunity to spend a day at this like extremely dreamy location. It was, there were beautiful gardens and cottages and a castle and this lake where you could rent like a little rowboat and go out on the lake. It was like a scene out of the movies. But as much as I had used oars before to paddle rafts and you know, canoes and kayaks and those sort of things, This was an entirely new experience for me that felt really strange, and and it was difficult to get the hang of it because unlike rafts or kayaks or canoes, in these little boats, you had to sit backwards to to row forward. You had to be, you're going one way, but like facing another way, and what this illustrates is that to press forward in this journey, to, to make forward movement, we have to be willing to take a posture of looking back. And specifically for the believer, the way that we move forward in hope, the way that we press on toward God is by looking back at what God has done, by intentionally considering the rich history of God's faithfulness 
to his people. And this is exactly where the psalmist begins. Look at me again in verses 1 through 3. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. When our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. See, what we're seeing here is that joy in the present depends on careful consideration of the past. Now, we don't know exactly what the psalmist is remembering about the past. But it is believed that this psalm is being written in a time around when the children of Israel were coming back to Jerusalem after a long season of exile in Babylon, and they're coming back to discover that their city is in complete ruins, their, their homes, their livelihood, their farms, and, and most specifically, the temple of the Lord. It is all devastated, and the people are scattered. They had hoped to return to life as they knew it, or as many of us say today, they had hoped to go back to normal. And yet, they had to face the bitter reality that almost everything was lost. And now what stood before them was a long, hard path of rebuilding. And so where do their minds go? When they come back to see just the devastation of their lives and the disappointment of what used to be, where do their minds go? Their minds don't go to despair. Their minds go back to redemptive history. What the psalmist is essentially saying is this, wait, we've been here before. We were captive people in Egypt, and yet, God, you delivered us out. You restored us to our home. We, we stood between drowning and defeat with, with the Red Sea on one side and Pharaoh and his army on the other, and yet you caused us to sing with joy on the other side as you made a way when there was no way. And as we journeyed through the wilderness, you caused the nations to tremble because of the rumors of this Hebrew God who parts the waters and destroys Israel's enemies. They're essentially saying, we may feel like life is devastated forever, but we are choosing to remember what you have done for us in the past, how you exchanged beauty for ashes, and that you will do it again. You did it then, and we believe that you can do it again. This is what the prophet Habakkuk did. When all around him, all he could see was decay and brokenness and barrenness. He, he prayed to God in Habakkuk 3, Lord, I've heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make them known in these years. I've heard the rumors of what you've done. Do it again, God. Now, if you want to get stuck in your despair, then all you have to do is hold on to all your expectations of life going back to normal. If you want to be stuck in this place of despair, just keep clinging to your frustrations and your expectations of what life should be. But if you want to experience the joy that the psalmist is expressing here, 
then you've got to look back to the long history of God's faithfulness and begin to pray, Lord, revive your works in our time. God, demonstrate your power like you did in years past. Lord, awaken your church like you've done throughout history. Open the storehouses of heaven and pour out your favor on your people. Restore us, oh God. Revive us again. Our path out of despair and into hope requires careful consideration of the past. Secondly, the journey out of despair and into hope requires cultivating in the present. Cultivating in the present. Now, the psalmist describes joy as something that grows and is harvested. He's using agricultural terminology here. And that fits in with the biblical picture of joy. In fact, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes joy as the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's something that grows out of our lives. It's something that God creates in us and then brings into our lives as we abide in him, as we abide, we the branches abide in the vine that is Jesus Christ. But at the same time, what we have to remember is that fruit is cultivated. Fruit is cultivated. And there are two things that we absolutely need in order to cultivate the fruit of joy. The first is patient endurance. Joy isn't just something that floats into our lives. Joy isn't just this abstract, ethereal thing that just appears in our, in our lives. Joy is an experience that grows and only after seasons of sowing. It's something that grows after seasons of planting. And so like the farmer plants the seed in the ground and then patiently waits, you know, during long seasons of seeing nothing and continues to water and continues to weed and continues to, to fertilize, so it is with the Christian. We continue to cultivate joy even when we don't see or experience the joy that we're cultivating. In fact, when the Bible describes joy, it's described as something that is resting on the other side of endurance. And we see this most clearly in the person of the work and in, in the work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12 describes Jesus like this, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There was joy on the other side of painful endurance. And so it is with us. Your harvest of joy, which is coming, is waiting for you on the other side of your struggle. And here is the good news. Jesus endured so that you and I can endure too. Our season of joy is coming, but it is through patient endurance of struggle and suffering and pain. Secondly, the way that we cultivate in the present is by planting tears. Now, joy is the fruit but what is the seed? The seed, we're told, is sorrow. The seed of joy is suffering and pain and tears. And here's the good news. When it comes to a year like 2020, we've been given a bag 
full of seed. All we may see right now is pain and frustration and tears, but what God has given us in a difficult year is a future abundant harvest of joy that is to come. But we have to plant those tears. Now, when it comes to expressing our emotions, when it comes to expressing emotions like sorrow, there are two extremes that we need to make sure that we avoid. One extreme that may be found in more fundamentalist traditions is the extreme of suppressing emotions, that emotions like sorrow need to be suppressed. And and things are said like this, keep it to yourself. Stop reflecting on what's wrong. Focus on what's good. Get over it. Move on. Put on a smile. God has given us joy, so be joyful. Be happy. Suppress that sorrow. But another extreme, which is probably more common in our modern individualistic expressions of Christianity, the kind of Christianity that you often see you know, sort of plastered across social media, is to broadcast your emotions. This extreme says, you know, I'm hurting right now, so I'm going to post about it online. I need to immediately tell everyone. I need to be authentic to who I am, and I need to be authentic to my experience, and I need to make sure everyone knows how I feel right now. And so one approach says, suppress your emotions. Don't don't show anyone your feelings. The other says, express your emotions to everyone. But the Bible gives us a third approach and better way. And it's found in verse five. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Your pain, your disappointment, your hurt, your frustration, your doubts, your loss, your feelings of overwhelm, they are all seeds to plant in the soil of God's faithful presence. This is where our sorrows belong. And sure, we can do this as a community. This isn't just an individual keep it to myself thing. In fact, Psalm 126 shows us that we lament as a community. We express these things as a community. But what we need to remember is that our tears belong to God. They belong in his presence. In fact, elsewhere in the scriptures, God is described as bottling up our tears, not one teardrop that is wasted. And we do this by lamenting to God in prayer, in song. We express our pain. We express our sorrow before God. We get it all out before him. This is what Horatio Spadford was doing Avoiding tears, that's going to get you resentment. That's going to lead to cynicism. That's going to lead to callousness. And it's probably going to lead to a big blow up somewhere down the line. Broadcasting your tears, that's going to get you probably a fleeting experience of therapeutic release, but it won't transform your life. But only sowing your tears is what the Bible says will produce joy. If you want to experience the joy that the Bible describes, then you have to lean into the process that the Bible describes, sowing your tears. And if you don't, if you don't, those tears will be wasted. Tears that are not sown in the faithful soil of God's presence 
are seeds that are cast upon the road or seeds that are cast upon hard soil. They've got to be planted. Don't waste your sorrows. Plant them. Let's look lastly at contemplating the future. Contemplating the future. Now, the first half of this psalm uh, looks back to the past. The second half of this psalm looks forward to a future that the that, that, that people of God are anticipating. This isn't just a stroll down memory lane. This is a journey of hope toward a future that isn't here yet. And I think that this is what the psalmist is getting at when he mentions those who dream in verse 1. We were like those who dream. This isn't talking about wishful thinking. This isn't talking about fingers crossed or daydreaming or some pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. This is talking about vision. The God-given vision to see a future with hope and possibilities. Derwin Gray describes vision like this. Vision is the God-inspired ability to see a future that does not yet exist but should This future is so Messiah-exalting and life-giving that people run into the future and drag it back into the present. When the psalmist says in verse 4, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. That's vision. See, the Negev, or also pronounced the Negev, literally means dry and parched. It is and was a dry and desolate place in the southern portion of Judah. It was a desert. But at certain times, the surrounding areas would receive these torrential downpours that would then flow into this area, and it would totally transform this desert into a fertile, vibrant place with streams. And so if you and I were brought to this desert and then asked, like, what do you see? Every single one of us would say, I see a dead, dry place. I see something that's lifeless. But the psalmist says something different. The psalmist says, no, 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 no. I see a place bursting with life and vibrancy. Just you wait. You see a dry, dead place. I see future rivers flowing through it. And you see, the Negev is an illustration of what God will do for his people. This is the Christian hope that God will restore and transform his people where there is dryness and lifelessness within us and within our experience. God in his faithfulness will send streams into the desert. God will bring life and fresh possibilities into our life and into our community and into our world. See, we are just like these pilgrims that sang this song. We are journeying between the past deliverance and future restoration. Jesus 
has come into the world to deliver us from the slavery and captivity of sin and to restore us to God once again through his death and his resurrection. This is the the rich history that we look back upon with eyes of faith, but also we continue to cry out, restore us, O Lord, revive us, O God, because we are still waiting the day when Jesus will return to bring final restoration to our lives and to our world. We're between We're journeying in the already but not yet. And Revelation 21 gives us fresh vision, fresh perspective of what life will be like, the life that we in Christ are anticipating. It says this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the future that we look to with eyes of hope. When sorrow and joy, these traveling companions, will finally part ways, and all that will remain for the believer is unending joy forevermore. And so what does that mean for us in the meantime? It means that we continue to go out every day sowing the seeds of the kingdom, sowing the seeds of the gospel of Jesus Christ in faith of what God is going to bring about through it. It means every day we join Jesus in his plan of renewal. It means that we cultivate joy in places of despair. It means that we go out and we cultivate hope in dry, desolate places. And it means that we pray to God for Jesus's return. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord, and restore us once and for all. Let's pray. God, this is our